about the difference between Hebrew and Aramaic. This is in your handout, but it's also here on the screen. So the prologue of Daniel, this opening chapter about the beginning of the captivity, um, is in the Hebrew language. Hebrew is the language we're taught at the, in, in college for six semesters, usually crammed into two years, and then every semester at the seminary and ever after. Because the, the Old Testament, the vast majority of the word of God, 39 books of the Old Testament were all written, or almost all written in Hebrew. But in your English Bible, in the book of Ezra, everything that's indented is quoted from Babylonian records. Ezra copies letters out wholesale from the official legal records, and all of that is in Aramaic in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew text. One verse of Jeremiah is in, is in Aramaic, and two words in Genesis are in Aramaic. And of course, Jesus says Aramaic things, doesn't he? Occasionally. Um... Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, things like that. Um, the name of the hill outside of Jerusalem in Hebrew would be Hugglegoth. But it's not in Hebrew, it's in Aramaic. What's the name of that hill of the skull in Aramaic? Golgotha. Yeah, so slightly different. Aramaic and Hebrew are as related as English and German. So an outsider learning English can see how similar it is to German. What's the word for your male parent in German? Vater. What is it in English? Father. To somebody from China, it's the same word. You know, I mean, a little bit spelling difference, but it's the same word. Um, but to people who grew up in it and who are, we're all biased to our mother tongue, right? We're like, no, that's a different language. Well, no, not really. It's, you know, and Hebrew and Aramaic, very similar to an outsider. But if you grew up speaking only Hebrew, you probably don't know Aramaic. Um, so and, and, and in, in, in the fourth verse of chapter 2, Daniel flips to Aramaic. And we have uh, three chapters about Nebuchadnezzar in Aramaic. A chapter about what happened under King Belshazzar. That's the handwriting on the wall. And a chapter about what happened during the reigns of Darius and Cyrus in Aramaic. Then, in the second half of the book, there is one prophetic piece still in Aramaic. And then he flips back to Hebrew for the end. Dan first. A reason? A significance? Yeah, let me, I mean, I'm, I'm coming to that. Yeah, yeah. Beth? Yeah, Daniel is, is, is taking something Nebuchadnezzar probably wrote. Daniel, who's been elevated to third position, um, has complete access to, to, to legal records and says, you know, Neb you know, O King, what you wrote, I'm going to copy that down because that's really good stuff. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah, like Solomon taking his mother's advice on how to find a good wife and turning it into Proverbs 31. You know, um, you know, same, same kind of thing going on there. Um, look at another way. The captivity begins. This maybe will kind of answer Dan's question of the why. Um, so 
the prophetic things that talk about the coming of Antichrist, the end of the world, the coming of the Messiah, those things Daniel leaves in Hebrew. So that's the more theologically technical part of the book, the, 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 the original thing. And then the stuff at the end, the ram and the goat, Daniel's prayer, and the Messiah and the end, that's all in Hebrew. But in your mind, if you remember this one detail, I think it'll help you later. All of what I call the Sunday school stories in Daniel are in Aramaic. So they're for the broader audience. Yeah, exactly that. That the dream of the giant statue with the head of gold and the chest of silver and the waist of bronze and the legs of iron and feet of clay and so forth. And then the fiery furnace. Yeah, the king's madness. I'm going to use the word lycanthropy when we get to it. Um, the handwriting on the wall, the lion's den, and the dream of the four beasts, all in Aramaic as a, a way of, I think, reaching out to the broader audience. But Daniel gets the last things, those last prophecies, when he is old and the captivity is about to end. And so it could be that it's more technical. It could also be, we're on our way home. Let's go back to the home tongue at that point too. I'm not, a, not a, I'm not 100% sure about that because the Bible doesn't tell us why he does that. Why does he go back and forth? But he does. I think Jeremiah has a very good reason for the one verse he gives in Aramaic amidst all the other Hebrew. Longest book of the Bible, word for word. And then he gives us one verse in Hebrew, uh, in Aramaic, which is like, it's a, uh, chapter 10, verse 11, which is about how to remember who the true God is when you're off in, in Babylon. It's a little, little, little rhyme. A pretty good thing to teach someone. Don't forget who the true God is. Just to talk about these languages, uh, following the Tower of Babel, um, and when uh, Abraham was a boy or before his time, we have a language that's basically the earliest form of, of a Hebrew language that they today call Northwest Semitic. Um, Job might be written in that dialect because Job has things that are not Hebrew. Um, and we just learn them as, well, when you're reading Job, this is what this means. That's how we're taught that. But I kind of think it might be this Northwest Semitic or pro-Canaanite dialect. Because Job lives about the time of Isaac and Jacob. A very early time period. And for whatever reason, Solomon adopts that dialect when somebody in Solomon's day, I think it was Asaph, the, one, of the, one of the chief musicians, writes it down. But that's not for this class. Then this proto-Canaanite is the, the, the language that Moses would have spoken in 1400, um, the earliest form of Hebrew. Uh, it's a primitive Hebrew, and it gives birth later to Hebrew, Phoenician, and Moabite, um, and Edomite, and Ammonite, and lots of other ites uh, around the Canaanite lands. The, a cousin language is Aramaic. Another cousin language is Ugaritic over on the far right on the chart there. Ugaritic is, to me, uh, uh, a fascinating language because different alphabet but the same words same word structure and unlike all of the other languages on this on this chart uh, all of them are read right to left which is we think of as backwards except Ugaritic that's written left to right and yet it's written like Hebrew is so it's kind of an interesting one to have to learn 
Um, and then as you see here, West Aramaic at the bottom and East Aramaic are later developments. And Daniel is not written in those dialects. It's written in an earlier form of Aramaic that puts it more on a par with regular biblical Hebrew. Okay. And just an example of that imperial Aramaic in, uh, in Hebrew at the bottom of the screen, if I'm going to translate the, the English, if I'm going to, uh, in my translation, say which, the English word which or that, a relative pronoun, in Hebrew it'll be the word asher, but if I'm reading Daniel, it's going to be the phrase kol kavel di. Translated the same way, which or that or something like that, but it, a very different dialect of Hebrew, so interesting thing to learn. I had three semesters of Aramaic at SEM. They were, it's an elective course, so interesting to take. Okay, if we start the book, let's see how we do here. So, uh, chapter one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Um, I'll, I'll talk about this more later, but Nebuchadnezzar's name has two spellings in the Bible. Sometimes it's Nebuchadnezzar, and sometimes it's Nebuchadrezzar. So the, is it an N or an R? And uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the Akkadian script that they wrote things in in Babylon, it's, there's sometimes no difference, and so which one was it? I don't care. You know, it doesn't make that much of a difference to me which way we do it. Um, but in his third year, so that third year, 605 B.C., this stuff happened. Nebuchadnezzar's army returns to Babylon from a long campaign, very successful. He's the crown prince. Then on his way back, the Battle of Carchemish happens way up north, north of Galilee, and Palestine is conquered. The Egyptians are defeated, but then dad dies. Nabopolassar, the, 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 the king, the emperor of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar is, is sent back to be crowned with a, just an escort, really, and his army remains behind. Um, and then on September 7th, then he is crowned king, uh, and he accedes or rises to the throne. Um, and a, a question here, because the identical moment is described in the book of Jeremiah, but Jeremiah says it was the fourth year, and Daniel says it was the third year. <clears throat> is we got a mistake going on there or what? Doesn't seem to some people like a big deal, but I believe they're using two different calendars um, because there are two different calendar systems in the Old Testament for when a king takes the throne. Do you count the months leading up to the new year? You know, it might be 11 months, it might be 10 months, it might be five, it might be three. Do you count those as his first year? Or do you not count those as his first year? Is his first year the full year? Because then it, if you start calling those things a, for a full year, then in a 10-year period, three separate kings might reign 14 years. See how your math gets off very fast if you start doing that stuff? And so as long as you know which system you're using, you're okay. But if you don't know, you got, you got stuff to, to, to worry about. Um, and so uh, in America, how did we solve that problem? When does the president take office? At, in Jan is it, it's actually January 20th, but it's the first month. So you have a little transitional period, right? And then he takes office. And so it's from January to December is really his first year in office. So we, took, we handled it by ma always making him take office in January unless... 
the previous guy died or something um, or resigned or whatever. It doesn't happen very, it does happen, but um, with them, the previous guy always died and so they had to figure out a way of when, do, when does this office take place. And I think that Daniel and Jeremiah, or yeah, Daniel, I think they're just using different calendars or different systems is all. Does that make enough sense that I can just go on? Okay, I'm not seeing too many grumpies on foreheads. So, uh, yeah, as Kath used to say. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. So he's, he loses. Along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, into the house of his God. He brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. What do we mean here by vessels? This is the EHV we're still using, by the way, in translation. Beth? Yeah, not ships with sails is my point, right? Not that kind of vessel, but, um, but, uh, but articles that you would use in a, in a temple for sacrifice. So gold, silver, maybe some bronze, mostly gold, but those kind of articles, vessels, things that you might have censers, which are the, what you put incense in and swing it around. By the way, don't make the mistake that my bishop once made in worship when I was a vicar. He light, lit incense to show the people what it was like, and he didn't blow it out. So you have to blow incense out after you, after you light it so it just smokes, you know, like a cigarette. But he let it burn, and it filled the whole church with smoke very rapidly. We had to open doors. It was the middle of winter, and open windows, turn fans on and stuff, and, but, you know, oh well. The king told Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, that Hebrew term here is head eunuch, but I think court official is probably a better term because I think by this time eunuch was no longer a medical term, but more what we would say is a minister, like a cabinet minister. Minister really means servant, right? But in England, if you're a minister, are you, are you a servant? Well, kind of a public servant, but you're really a mucky muck, right? A, 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 a poobah, a hootie tootie, a big guy, right? A puffed out chest kind of a person. Anyway, so the king told Ashpenaz to bring some young Israelite men from the royal family or from the nobility. So you've, you've conquered Judah, bring some Jews. Um, and he was to choose young men who had no blemish, who were good looking, who had insight into all kinds of wisdom, who possessed knowledge, understanding, and learning, and who were capable of serving in the king's palace in order to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Well, let's look at the list before we get to the Chaldean thing. So why these attributes? Young men, no blemish, good-looking, insight, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, learning, capable of palace service. Why did Nebuchadnezzar want those kind of guys? Beth? Yeah. And also, I would think that they wouldn't, like the rest of this world we live in, uh -huh. someone who's not right, not good-looking, they're marginalized. Yeah, exactly. And, and if I'm the king of Babylon, do I want uggos in my court? You know, forgive the word, but no, I want the, be the brightest and the best, including the best-looking. So even if, if, uh, if, uh, even if Smith over there has some good book learning, 
Maybe Sutton or Scharf are better looking, so they're the ones who, who he wants in his court. You know, that's how it would work. Um, and that's what he did. And he would want the best of everything. We're going to see that he wants the best food, or at least what people perceived to be the best food, and the best wine, and the best vessels, and the best of the, of the, of the, of the young men. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, what about without blemish? So, or, you know, what, what, was, uh, what was Leah's handicap in Genesis? She had something wrong with her eyes. She had weak eyes. Maybe they were blue. You know, ooh, gross. You know, they're just, they're not the right kind of eye. Rachel has the brown eyes, you know, but Leah, yeah. Weak eyes? I don't know what weak eyes means. Okay. You know, there are different ways of, of assigning it, but I, I just think that those of us with blue eyes are just like, should be marginalized. You know, <laughs> send us away. Good looking, and, and then insight and wisdom, though. You begin to get some traits that are maybe a little bit more understandable. You can have smarts, but if you're not wise, what good are your smarts? You know? I've, over the years, I've known guys who were super smart, but some of them are so smart they can't make themselves understood. You know, they just talk and talk and talk and talk, and I don't know what they're talking about, but it's going over my head. So is that the best kind of advisor to have for a king? You know, so, but knowledge, understanding, learning, capable of palace service. Are you going to try to take over, or are you going to try to advise the king about what the king should do? You know, yeah, Ben. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And draw from your experiences and learn from your mistakes and things like that. Now the last item, the literature and language of the Chaldeans, why? Well, the Chaldeans had really only just taken over in Babylon. Nabopolassar was the first of those. And so now, um, and they were given some help by the Medes, which is why Daniel occasionally mentions the Medes. The Medes were in good favor with the, with the Babylonians, who were really Chaldeans. Babylon is the big name. Chaldea was a, a specific group within Babylon that were well-known as astrologers and stuff. And they became kind of the, the go-to guys for advisors, the Chaldeans. And it happened that Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar came out of that Chaldean group. And then the Medes were um, another nation that came in and helped them. They were neighbors. They were the, the, the Iowans who came up to help. Yes? Is that where Abraham's family Ur of the Chaldees? Yeah. Well, I kind of think so. Ur was way down south um, uh, in uh, what today we would call Kuwait as opposed to Iraq, which is where the rest of Mesopotamia is. Yeah, good. Very good. Oh, yeah, we're coming up to that moon worship in the names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, good. So the king assigned them daily rations from the special royal food and from the king's own wine. He ordered that they should be trained for three years. So that's why I kind of think maybe they were, you know, freshmen, sophomores, 14, 15 years old. So when they graduate after the end of their three-year service, they're now 18 or so. That's just where that's coming through from in my head. Um, 
And uh, at the end of the training, they were to serve the king. Can you learn a language well enough to speak it fluently in a year? Eh. And two years? You're getting pretty close. But if you've been doing it for three years, you probably have got it, especially if you were young when you started. You know. You know. Some things you can remember for the rest of your life. You know. Adonai ro'ilo exar. Do you know what it means? Do you recognize the tune? The Lord's my shepherd, shepherd, I shall not want. Yeah. That's because Sushon's dad was my Hebrew prophet, Northwestern. And he made us memorize a psalm in Hebrew um, about twice a year. Psalm 1, Psalm 23, different things. And um, I was directing King Lear. And the guy who played the second biggest role, which is Gloucester, the guy who gets his eyes gouged out in King Lear, you know, it's the out vile jelly line, maybe you don't know King Lear, but that guy uh, quit the play with three weeks left to go. And we tried a couple of other guys, and everybody I tried was ineligible for some reason, you know, like was hurt or academic probation or something like that. Uh, one guy who would have been ideal was in his first year, and they wouldn't let him jump into a play like that. So I had two and a half weeks to memorize five acts of iambic pentameter. Um, and on opening, on, on, no, dress rehearsal night was the day that Professor Spouty said I was up to recite Psalm 23 in Hebrew. I was trying to memorize five acts, three hours of iambic pentameter. And one scene I never did learn, by the way. I made my way through it every night, but I never did learn the word, the line. I have no idea what I was supposed to have said. But uh, it always came out umpity-pumpity or whatever, but I, I have no idea. What, but uh, anyway, but to, just to pass Spouty's quiz, I had to put the words of the Hebrew text into the tone of the hymn. And it worked. You know, still remember it today. should do it in worship sometime. <laughs> we'll see. All right, I'm using up our time, I'm sorry. So, what was wrong with the special royal food? Can you think of a, one thing at least? Sacrifice to idols. Yeah. So, sacrifice to idols. The wine was probably a libation wine. So, they poured some of it out against an altar to a god as well. They were probably ceremonially unclean animals. No, there would have been wild boar, there may have been uh, lizard, there may have been snake, there may have been turtle soup. There could have been shrimp, you know, lobster. No, lobster is poor man food. Until the 20th century, lobster was always poor man food. Yeah, now it's not, but it always was. But, and then not accept, uh, prepared in an acceptable way, probably strangled and not drained properly. Not drained properly. That, that, that made it not kosher. So Daniel balks about this. And, in the, and now, now think, think of the way that Daniel's introducing this. He's introduced the when and the where and now the problem, right? And he hasn't even gotten to who was there. So as you're reading this, you're going to think to yourself, what would I have done? And now Daniel says, by the way, here we are, we're the four guys, this is what we did. So that's the way he presents this in the chapter. In the group of young men were the Judeans, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So, yes? I have a question. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah, they were. Well, and, and at this point, Daniel's a boy, just been captured. And I think he's just trying to see where the boundaries are. The way a boy, you know, imagine a sophomore gets deported, you know, to, to Australia. And he just has to figure out, you know, do I really have to eat the Vegemite? You know, that kind of a thing. And uh, later on, though, we find, I mean, the fiery furnace, lion's den. Yeah, they were pretty terrifying guys. And each king tries to make his own name for what his special punishment is going to be. Because you know, each king has a different, like, horror. So, let's find out together. The chief of the officials gave them their new names. You know, any of your families come through um, Ellis Island? Do you think your name got changed from what it was to what it is? Just the pronunciation. Pronunciation or whatever. But a lot of Americans ended up as Browns and Greens and Smiths at that point. And I don't know what they were before they, you know, before they. I mean, my, my Smith name, my, the ancestors who were Smiths came from Wales. And I really don't know if we were like, or something in Wales. And the guy just said, Smith, you know, and, and off we went to, uh, to uh, where is it in New York, uh, the county. Um, um, my, my boys and I visited uh, 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 Tennessee this summer, and we went into Illinois, went to Nauvoo, where Joseph Smith died, um, because uh, I believe that my ancestors are directly related to Joseph Smith, the founder of the, of the Mormon church. I believe that we left that county of New York, at the same moment that Joseph Smith did. I talked to an elder in Nauvoo about this. He, he led people down to Nauvoo, Illinois, and died. My family left um, a Palmyra. That's at Palmyra, New York. But we went to Columbia and saw County, Wisconsin, and stayed Christian. And Joseph's group didn't. And I think that, but I think that, that was, we were connected. Because there were only 1,000 people in that county in 1820. What are the chances of there being two large Smith families without them being related somehow? So I kind of think we were related. But anyway, anyway, names get changed. So he changes um, Daniel to Belshazzar, Hananiah to Shadrach, Mishael to Meshach, and Azariah to Abednego. And just to look at them, Daniel means God is my judge. Belteshazzar means Bel, or Marduk, Judge or protect him. So they're kind of related names. Um, Hananiah. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. And he gives him the name Shadrach, fear of Aku. Aku is the Sumerian or Babylonian moon god. So there's that moon god worship coming out of Chaldea again. Um, Mishael is almost identical to Michael. What does Michael mean? Who is like God? It's a question. And Mishael means who is like God. And so he gives him Meshach, who is like Aku, the Babylonian moon god. So kind of the same name, just a different divinity at the end. And then Azariah, the Lord helps, becomes helper or servant of Nebo, Abednego, and another, another divinity Something like that. So they give some names that are kind of close, but they're a little bit more Babylonian, a little 
Babylonish or whatever. Um, and then from there, the young men are going to talk about being steadfast in their faith. Now, I don't know. Do we want to, we have like two minutes. Should we start this section? Oh, sure. So Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the special food of the king or with the wine that he drank. So he sought the permission of the chief official so that he would not have to defile himself. So step one, Daniel says we must obey God rather than men. Right? Acts 5.29. Step two, Daniel sought permission. He doesn't just ignore the king's command. He asks. And how often would things go better in our relationships if we would not just assume, but that we would ask? You know, why... Why just say, you know, they'll never agree. Why, why don't we just ask? Because maybe we can start a discussion and find out, yeah, that would be okay. So Daniel asks. Third step is what God does. God made the chief of the officials favorable and sympathetic toward Daniel. So there's something about Daniel's character that makes the boss, the Babylonian boss, kind of receptive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and wisdom. Yeah, 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 but humility, yeah. Then the chief of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking less healthy than those of the other young men who are your age? You put my life at risk before the king. You want carrots and potatoes and the king is giving you Big Macs? Your complexion's going to go bad. Wouldn't we think the opposite? Yeah. Probably. Well, yeah. So, you know, because, you know, the king's offering you squid and shrimp and, you know, and, well, whatever else. Daniel said to the superintendent, and now Daniel, another, there's another guy, right? The superintendent is not the chief of the officials. This is a lower guy. So in terms of, uh, uh, everybody know Hogan's Heroes? It's not Colonel Clink anymore. We're now dealing with Sergeant Schultz. Okay, so we've gone down a couple of rungs on the ladder. Daniel says to Sergeant Schultz, whom Colonel Clink had placed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Tell them to give us only vegetables and we'll eat them with, and, and, and we'll drink water. Now the word for vegetable here um, uh, isn't necessarily potatoes and carrots and things. It could be the seeds of legumes, like beans and things. Or it could be lettuce. It could be all vegetables and fruits, as we think of it, and seeds or grains, but it's not meat. It's a, it's a word that only gets used here and a little bit later in, I think, verse 15, so I'm not sure. So, you know, what, what and, the, and the Greek isn't what sure what to do with it either. The Greek says salad. So, you know, again, a technical term, the Greek translator wasn't sure of what to do with and the superintendent, a lesser official, what do you think he did? What would Hogan do with Sergeant Schultz? <laughs> Daniel said to the, to the sergeant, you take the king's food and give us vegetables and fruit. So you give us your rations and you can have the lobster and the squid and the shrimp and the, and the roast pig. So do you think the sergeant was happy about that? Oh, what's my wife going to think if I bring home a... 
25-pound ham. You know, sure. But also, what does that do with the sergeant? It shuts his mouth. Because Daniel can't get in trouble without the sergeant getting in trouble. If we, sw- if we switch the food. Right? So Daniel is showing wisdom here. And so his connivance is going to be kept secret. And then, observe our, opinions, our appearance and the appearance of the young men who eat the special royal food. Then deal with your servants based on what you see. So ten days. So he listened to what they said about this and tested them for ten days. Maybe we'll wait almost ten days and talk about what happened when we come back then next time. So I'll see you in a week. So uh, that's all the time that we have. So God bless you. Let's close with the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Orleans, Minnesota.